So, why are you here this morning? It's quite an important question to ask, because the answer will determine, for the most part, what you think of everything that happens this morning. Um, What you think of the singing, the readings, the prayers, uh, the visiting preacher speaking for 45 minutes too long. That's hopefully not going to happen. Obviously, I'm joking. There's still been some nervous shifting in some seats. But why? It's because of the expectation, isn't it? Or the the reason why you all came here this morning. But maybe you're here because it's it's the Sunday before Christmas. Uh, The Christmas day is too busy, maybe, to get to church. And and you really want to hear some carols. Or maybe it's your normal Sunday activity. It's uh, getting together with a group of believers and praising God. Well, the passage that we're looking at this morning, it's, if you hadn't noticed, it's not your typical nativity Christmas passage. But it's an example of someone who is doing something which was, for all intents and purposes, a very normal thing. Just fetching some water. But what she actually got was something quite different. But before we, we leap headfirst into the passage... We're going to put what we're looking at into some context. As I'm sure most of us, if not all of us, will be aware, uh, John's Gospel is found in the New Testament with a a massive generalisation. And in order to keep this bit brief, the Old Testament sets a story of creation, then the fall of humanity, then the majority of the rest of the pages are spent pointing the readers towards a coming king or redeemer. The various books that are in the Old Testament cover a vast number of styles of writings, but there's one theme. Mankind is broken, but God has a plan, and he will put things right through his saviour. This plan sees the birth of the nation of Israel, through whom God's champion will come. Then you see the Israelite people falling away and being drawn back to God whilst they wait Then, suddenly, the Old Testament comes to an end. Then there's a half a millennium that passes before the next books that are written that we have in our Bibles today. And these are the Gospels, the New Testament. These Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, are all similar, but were all written for very different purposes. Matthew, Mark and Luke all written in a similar pattern, recounting various accounts of the life and times of Jesus Christ, written for specific audiences, the Jews, the Romans and the Greeks, respectively. Then we have John's Gospel, which is somewhat alone. John's Gospel focuses on spiritual things, particularly the deity or being in the nature of God and the humanity of Jesus. As for its purpose, the writer tells us why he's writing these things down in chapter 20, verse 31, where he writes, These things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. We need to keep that in mind as we look at the passage that we've got this morning. As for the immediate context, the Gospel of John splits into three major headings. There's the ministry of the pre-incarnate king, or pre-incarnate just meaning before he took on human form. And this is the section from chapter 1, verse 1, through to chapter 1, verse 19, or sorry, 18. The ministry of the incarnate king is the second part where our passage is, and it's from chapter 1, verse 19, to chapter 19, verse 42. And then the ministry of the risen king. For the rest of the book. So as I say, our passage falls into the second of these two sections. And I've already used that five minutes. But all of this is important to the passage that we look at, as I trust you will see. So, we pick up the account at verse 1 of chapter 4. 
It'd be great to keep it uh, open in front of you because we're going to be flicking backwards and forwards to, to that passage and just so you can check that I'm, what I'm saying is, is accurate to what the Bible says. So, verse 1. Having learned that the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, were becoming aware of his movements and the activities of his disciples, Jesus leaves Judea, where he had been causing quite a stir. If you remember a couple of chapters back, he overturned some tables in the temple, and he heads back to Galilee. Now, I'm not sure about how good your historical geography is, but Judea is in the south, is south of Galilee, and right in the middle, if I can get this thing to work, yes, right in the middle... You have Samaria and Galilee at the top. Now, there's a long-standing disagreement between the Jews and the Samaritans. This stemmed right back to the, to the death of Solomon, King Solomon, which you can read about in 1 and 2 Kings. And it led to a split in the kingdom. The differences became deeper when the Samaritans built a temple on, the, on Mount Gerizim, where they worshipped. Now, the outcome was simple. As John spells out in verse 9, the Jews did not associate with the Samaritans. The divide was such that it was typical for Jewish travellers to actually cross over the Jordan River and cross by on the other side. But the most direct route was to go straight through Samaria. So that's what Jesus did. Whether or not this was because he knew that the Pharisees would simply not follow him into Samaria, I can only speculate. But the journey is clearly taking its toll on Jesus. He's tired from his travels. And he goes to take a rest near a well at about midday, the sixth hour. Now, last year, I went to Turkey for a holiday with my fiancée and some of her family. And the temperatures at noon peaked around 39 degrees. And one day I was feeling restless, so I decided to go for a walk into town. It's about a mile or so away. It was about midday and, you know, me, like a proper tourist, thought nothing of the heat. What a mistake that was. I'd only gone about five minutes into the walk and I was sweating, I was covered in dust and I was already searching for shade. Midday is not the time of day where you want to be doing anything in that kind of heat. Definitely not chores, let alone chores that require you to be outside, let alone chores that require you to do physical exertion outside. All that said, this Samaritan woman comes from her home to collect some water. It could be that this woman was so outcast from the people in which she lived that this time of day was the only time where she could actually fetch any water without abuse. And we'll learn a little bit more about that later on. But whatever her reason for being there at this time, there she was. Now, we've already mentioned the Jews simply did not associate with the Samaritans, which makes what happens next all the more astounding. As if there were no cultural boundaries at all, Jesus asks her for a drink. The Samaritan woman, clearly aware of the differences and probably quite shocked, replies, you're a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. Clearly this is not as if Jesus hadn't noticed. How can you ask me for a drink? It's actually worth noting the point that the woman was making. She was a she, which sounds really obvious. But Jewish men of the day would not speak to or seldom even acknowledge their own wives in the street, let alone a stranger. So her response can really be understood as being one of either surprise or shock. Jesus, however, responds with something quite profound. Verse 10. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, 
you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now the word gift here is only used once actually, in, again in this gospel. Um, and it's talking about eternal life here. But the woman misunderstands, or at least doesn't fully grasp what Jesus is saying. Whilst verse 11 and 12 show it's a misunderstanding at best, it does show that she knows a, a bit about her cultural past, albeit a knowledge that at the moment is blinding her from what's right in front of her. Nevertheless, Jesus persists in verse 13, and show, it shows him taking a different approach. This time we see some slight changes in the language. Verse 10, you have the gift of or from God, and that becomes, in verse 13, the gift from Jesus, identifying Jesus actually as being God. Verse 10, the living water becomes specifically identified as being eternal life. Jesus isn't saying here that he has some magical bottle of water that never runs dry. He's not saying that he has a secret stash of water or another well like this one. He's offering eternal life. But the woman still misses the point. But she does, however, acknowledge two things when we get to verse 15. First, that it's Jesus himself that is offering this living water. Sir, she says, give me this water. So the second thing is, she needs it. It's Jesus that's offering, and she needs it. But the scale of this offer still isn't understood. This, this woman, for one reason or another, still doesn't equate the person offering the gift with the actual gift on offer. In her mind, she came to the well to get some water, and that's all that's on her mind. Jesus, however, is using this conversation for a much bigger purpose. So Jesus goes on in verse 16. Go, call your husband and come back. Wait, what's he saying? They were getting along fine, weren't they? Where did this come from? Was Jesus just, was Jesus just saying, get your husband, because if I'm giving someone this kind of offer, it should really go through the head of the household first. No, of course not. He's not saying to this woman, yeah, you're just not getting it. Get, get someone who's going to understand. He's not saying that. What Jesus is doing is waking this woman up, as we'll see, to who it is that she's talking to, to help her understand exactly what she's saying. Verse 17 and 18 actually make the conversation a little more uncomfortable for the woman. And it may well shed some light on why she was collecting her water in midday. Jewish custom was that a woman might marry and divorce twice, maybe three times at a, at a maximum. The fact that this woman had five ex-husbands shows a life, according to the laws then, of exceeding immorality. This may well have caused her to have been an outcast, causing this necessity of drawing water at midday. And now Jesus is sh shining a spotlight on this aspect of this woman's life. So she does what most of us would do, we try and change the subject. Despite the almost flattery of verse 19, if you read it, I can see you're a prophet. This almost looks like she's purposely bringing up one of the more contentious issues between the Samaritans and the Jews, doesn't it? What she, what she talks about here is one of the major sticking points between the two peoples, again, since the split that I mentioned in, in 1 and 2 Kings. But Jesus will, it's not going to be dissuaded. He graciously deals with the comment, again, bringing it back to the subject at hand. Verse 21, Jesus appeals to the woman's experience of their encounter, so she would believe what he's saying. After all, she, she'd recognized him as a prophet. 
But now, the response in the second half of verse 21, it completely disarms her. Jesus says that actually this location issue is broadly irrelevant, as the coming saviour will not limit the place of worship to a specific location. To understand verse 22, it's worth mentioning the Samaritans only had certain books of the scriptures. At the point of the divide of the kingdom that we mentioned, they only had the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They worshipped the true God, but they didn't know or accept the rest of the Old Testament scriptures. They knew little about the revelation of God through the history of Israel. They didn't recognise the that the salvation promised in Genesis would come through a Jew, as Jesus says in verse 22. Verse 23 and 24 expand on the matter of true worship and has great implications on how we worship today. Worship needs to be in line with God's nature and not with the location of a temple. God's nature is spirit, as it says, insofar it is not bound by limits, either physical or otherwise. And to worship him in any other way would not be to give God the glory he deserves. Unfortunately, we don't have time to to delve into all of that today because that's a huge issue. Despite this answer, however, the woman seems to have one last ditch attempt to evade the issue. Verse 25 demonstrates three, three, three things on the part of this woman. Firstly, she has faith. She says, I know the Messiah is coming. Secondly, that she knew her knowledge was limited and she needed things explaining to her about the will and nature of God. And finally, that this Christ that she's waiting for would be the one to instruct that learning. You might think that this woman is uh, just attempting to end the conversation. When he comes, he'll explain everything to us. It's not for us to decide now. But what does Jesus do? She said, he will explain everything to us. Verse 26, Jesus does just that. In fact, he's been doing that the whole way through this conversation. The phrase, I am he, is uh, only repeated one other place in this gospel, and that's at his trial. It doesn't have the connotation that it does now. But that confession, if you will, is is the pinnacle of this conversation and the driver of what John is getting at in writing this account. Now, you can almost imagine what's going through this woman's head at this point, can't you? Have you ever seen a film where, at the end, there's some major twist? It suddenly makes you think back and think, oh, well, that's why that happened at this point. And the next time you watch the film, you you suddenly notice all these little aspects. But I wonder how many times this woman would have run this conversation back over in her head. We learn that despite the initial desire to just fetch some water... This woman in verse 28, actually, after the passage we're looking at, leaves her jar and she rushes back to the town to tell people. And from that small conversation, actually in verse 39, many Samaritans believe because of this one outcast's testimony. So that's the passage in broad. But what's it got to do with this this morning? I mean, it's the weekend before Christmas, after all. Shouldn't I be talking about a a baby in a crib? If this point, oh, that was the well I missed. Baby in a crib, there we go, back on, on track. Well, just for a few minutes, I want to talk about these things, these few things. One of the most difficult times at Christmas can be when you receive a present that you don't really want or don't really need. But we've all been there, haven't we? 
Ultimately, our reaction to presents comes down to satisfaction, whether or not we're satisfied with what we get. And we're never satisfied with Christmas socks for the sake of the recording, just in case my parents hear. But we've got to remember how we started this morning. Why are you here? Because again, the response to that question will determine whether or not you are satisfied afterwards. But Jesus, in this passage, has basically said this. Your satisfaction, your thirst, it will only be quenched by what I have to offer. Really, we're no different from that woman at the well. Our context may be different, but our need is the same. Particularly at Christmas, we're just out to get water, or presents, or food. We're just out to get what satisfies us, aren't we? But that satisfaction will soon disappear, and again, we're left wanting more. In fact, it's, it's worse than you think. I would say a good percentage of my life has been spent trying to find stuff that will satisfy me. If we're honest, it applies to most of us, doesn't it? We try and fill our lives with loads of stuff, qualifications, friends, money, the latest gadgets, whatever it is. It's like we have this big hole in our lives and we try and cram as much stuff in it as possible. But as we've already said, Christmas wears off, presents get old, our tastes change and we move on to the next thing and we try and find satisfaction in that. We actually, at Christmas, we get so swept up in thinking about what we're filling our lives and our faces with, we forget something very important. We are no different from the woman at the well. And what Jesus says to that lady applies to us today. He says, the lack of satisfaction you have, the hole that you keep trying to fill stuff, stuff fill with stuff, that's the words, is like putting water in a bucket with a big hole at the bottom. You'll never fill it. But what Jesus says is that the only thing that will satisfy us completely is having a relationship with God. Now this may seem a, bit, a little bit strange to some of you here, but allow me to briefly explain. The problem is this, we were made to have a relationship with God, to live in a creation that he made for us. But we decided we weren't satisfied with what we were given, so we turned our back on him. The Bible talks about Adam and Eve turning away from God and saying, no, we, we know better. But actually, we're the same as them. We've all said to God, myself included, in one way or another, shove off God, I'm in charge, not you. And that's basically what the Bible refers to as sin. That sin against God means the relationship, relationship between us and God is spoiled. Jesus says that the only way we'll be satisfied is if we have this relationship with God. That God is holy and we cut off for him by the sin we do. In many other parts of the Bible, we, we learn that actually we're so full of sin that no matter what we do, it would never be enough to fix that relationship. So is it all useless? Are we without hope? Well, no, we're not. Why? Because the Christmas story doesn't end at Christmas. The first Christmas only shows really its importance at Easter you see, God said that the punishment for sin that we all do is complete separation from God. It's death forever. Just as you'd expect any crime to be punished, only in this case, 
the crime is against God, and all of us are the criminals. The good news is this. Jesus was born on that first Christmas. He lives a life free from sin and says to each of us at Easter, you all owe a death for your sin. But Jesus says, I don't. I've not sinned. I'll die in your place. I'll pay that punishment. Then you can have your relationship with God back. And it all started at that first Christmas. And it's literally that simple. That's why we celebrate Christmas 2,000 years after the event. Now, we may be even more like the woman at the well. We may throw out some arguments. We may say objections like she does. We might try and put ourselves off or convince ourselves that Jesus doesn't want us. Because maybe we're uncomfortable, really, looking at the mess of our own lives, just as that woman was. Maybe we try and change the subject. But you know what? It's not the Samaritan woman in her mess that seeks Jesus. It's Jesus in his perfection that seeks this woman with this free, gracious offer. And that offer applies to us today. The fact that it applies to all of us here, even the believer. Why? Because it combats pride in the believer, in the efforts of our good times, because it's a free gift that you can't earn. It combats despair in the dark times when we realize we've messed up because it's a free gift. So we can't lose it. And we were given the gift when we were a sinner in the first place. Well, just look at how Jesus persists in this passage. Look at how many times he goes back to this woman. There's only one way you can be truly satisfied and have your thirst quenched. And just like he says to this Samaritan woman, just like he says to you and I here today, I am he. He is the only way you'll be satisfied. And just before I finish, I want to say these two last things that might sound a bit strange. I want to urge you to not be satisfied with two things this Christmas. I know it sounds a bit strange having spent the last 20 minutes or so talking about finding satisfaction to now talk about being unsatisfied. But here they are anyway. If you're not a believer here today, I want you to take this one away with you. No one likes hearing the words, you've had enough. Whether it's cake or presents or whatever, you don't like hearing it. But this Christmas, try and realize that actually the world, the media, the shops, everything is trying to tell you, as soon as Christmas is done, you've had enough. Like we heard earlier about having 11 twelfths of the year without Christmas. But don't fall for it. Don't be satisfied with just Christmas in December. Don't be satisfied with just the first chapter of the story. Don't be satisfied with just the baby Jesus. Because his birth was only the first step on his journey to the Easter cross. And it's only when you look at the Easter events that you can and will work out where true satisfaction will really be found. And if you're a believer, I think we should be some, not satisfied with something else. I want you to quickly think in your head about someone who isn't a believer maybe a loved one maybe someone you've tried to witness to before maybe someone you've invited to a a Christmas service this year and look at the seat next to you look at any empty seat in the room now I want you to imagine in your mind how it would look to see that person that you've just thought of in your mind filling that seat maybe even as soon as Easter sitting listening to the good news about Jesus Christ and how he 
satisfies. Now allow that thought and what we've looked at today about how Jesus persists in trying to get to that woman. Allow that to inspire you not to be satisfied with just a witness at Christmas. Don't be satisfied when you feel like you only have one opportunity a year to tell your friends about how Jesus died for them, about how he was born and died for them. Let that lack of satisfaction impact your prayer life, your conversations, your work life, your family life, and persist as Jesus persisted. Then next year, maybe, God willing, you can look round and have your heart filled with joy as you see friends and loved ones answering the question, why are you here with the answer? Because Jesus was born and died for me and he's the only thing that can satisfy you.